Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of July 16th, 2022. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, we're going to get a little deep tonight into some uh, cultural and historical background to the war in Ukraine and the kind of culture war which is going on within Russia itself. But to um, to begin, did you happen to catch this one? The Speaker of Russia's Lower House of Parliament on July 6th threatened to, quote-unquote, claim back Alaska <laughs> if the United States freezes or seizes Russian assets in retaliation for its invasion of Ukraine. Quote, let America always remember, there's a piece of territory, Alaska. Vyacheslav Volodin said at the last session of the state Duma before the summer break, quote, when they tried to manage our resources abroad, let them think before they act that we too have something to take back. Volodin said, and he noted that the um, deputy speaker of the Duma, Pyotr Tolstoy, had recently proposed holding a referendum in Alaska on joining Russia. (laughs) And the day after Volodin's comments, billboards proclaiming, Alaska is ours, appeared in the Siberian city of Krasnoyarsk, apparently placed by a local patriot, quote-unquote. Russia, which began settling Alaska in the 1740s, famously sold the territory to the United States in 1867 for $7.2 million, or roughly two cents per acre. In 2015, after the Crimean vote for unification with Russia, which, as we discussed on our last podcast, was blatantly illegal, of course. A group of disgruntled Russian descendants in Alaska launched an Alaska Back to Russia signature drive on the White House website. It garnered some 30,000 signatures, although it is not clear where they were all from. I don't know. Is it possible for uh, is it possible for bots to put a um, a signature on the White House website on the same day as Volodin's bluster about Alaska? Russia's ex-president Dmitry Medvedev took to social media to invoke the threat of nuclear war if the International Criminal Court moves to prosecute Russia for war crimes in Ukraine. Quote. The idea to punish a country that has the largest nuclear arsenal is absurd in and of itself, Medvedev wrote on the messaging app Telegram, and potentially, he added, creates a threat to the existence of mankind, end quote. This is but the latest in a recent paroxysm of nuclear threats from Russian political figures, if you've been following it. Back in June, Russian state TV personality Vladimir Solovyov warned that if NATO continues to support Ukraine, 
there will be a, quote, massive nuclear strike, end quote, that only mutants will survive. His word, mutants, quote, unquote. And the month before that, back in May, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warned of serious risks of nuclear war if the West continues to arm Ukraine. But uh, as for the irredentist tip, as it were, making claims on Alaska, Vladimir Putin himself also engaged in some undisguised irredentism last month, grandiosely comparing himself to Peter the Great, the 18th century czar who expanded Russia's borders to the West in a campaign of military conquest, after visiting an exhibition dedicated to the fabled czar, Putin said, quote, Peter the Great waged the Great Northern War for 21 years. It would seem that he was at war with Sweden. He took something from them. He did not take anything from them. He returned what was Russia's. End quote. Putin, by the way, is not correct here. With the exception of an area of what is now Estonia, conquered from the Teutonic Knights by Ivan the Terrible in the Livonian War of 1558, and held by Muscovy until 1581, when it was taken by the Swedes, none of the large territories taken by Peter in the Great Northern War of 1700 to 1721 had ever before been under Russian rule. The Great Northern War marked the beginning of the Russian Empire, with Moscow gaining control of a significant stretch of the Baltic coast for the first time. So, aren't you glad that you have Bill Weinberg to do the historical research for you and call Putin out on his historical revisionism? You're welcome! But let's take a look at the, uh, at the background of some of the characters that we've just mentioned here. Back in uh, March of 2018, Speaker of the Duma, Vyacheslav Volodin, blatantly defended sexual harassment. There was a flap going on at that time about um, female reporters who were covering the Duma were actually being harassed and propositioned by members of the Duma. And speaking on International Women's Day to a uh, group of women pool reporters at the Duma, Volodin said, quote, Is it dangerous for you to work in the Duma? If yes, change your job. End quote. How perfectly charming. Then we have Pyotr Tolstoy. Back in uh, 2017, there was some controversy over um, plans to relocate a cathedral in St. Petersburg. And uh, Pyotr Tolstoy suggested that it was, of course, the Jews who were behind it, saying that powerful Jews were continuing the work that they had um, started in 1917 when they, quote, jumped out of the pale of settlement and pulled down our churches, end quote. So 
if you get the historical references here, <clears throat> under the czars, there was a pale of settlement in Russia's west beyond which Jews were not allowed to settle. And of course, that ended with the revolution of 1917. So Pyotr Tolstoy is implying, well, first, that it's a bad thing that the Jews were allowed out of the pale of settlement. Unbelievable. That's the sound of me slapping my forehead. I'll do it again. You hear that? <laughs> and also implying that, you know, the Jews were responsible for the um, anti-religious persecution under the Soviets. And interestingly, this uh, Pyotr Tolstoy is a direct descendant of Leo Tolstoy. Certainly an irony, given how the um, literary giant's anarcho-pacifist beliefs were clearly antithetical to everything that Pyotr Tolstoy represents. Nonetheless, back in May of this year, Pyotr Tolstoy boasted of how his great-great-grandfather, quote, slaughtered British and French troops during the Crimean War, while insisting that Moscow will not end its war in Ukraine until it has reached the Polish border. Very comforting. And uh, just to make it all even more surreal, as Pyotr Tolstoy is invoking the pacifist Leo Tolstoy for war propaganda, there's actually a crackdown on Tolstoy going on in Russia, if you can believe it or not. You're probably aware that in the uh, initial eruption of anti-war protest in Russia after the invasion was launched back in February, there was a very harsh wave of repression in which more than 15,000 people were arrested, many of whom I believe remain behind bars and are facing lengthy prison terms under a new law which was passed which criminalizes anti-war dissent. And in response to this, uh, Russian protesters have been... Um, trying to get around the law by engaging in sort of veiled dissent, so to speak, not gathering in groups, which is now not possible, but standing individually, sometimes with um, empty signs, you know, placards with nothing written on them as a statement against censorship. But on April 10th, anti-war activist Konstantin Goldman was arrested by the police for standing in Red Square with a copy of Tolstoy's War and Peace. So that says everything, doesn't it? The actual ideological heirs of Leo Tolstoy face repression and prison in Russia, while his great-great-grandson actually attempts to exploit the pacifist authors for war propaganda. How cynical do you get exploiting Leo Tolstoy for war propaganda? All I can say is Tolstoy would shit at this cynical and twisted exploitation of his legacy. I just consulted the uh, rather exhaustive biography, Tolstoy, A Russian Life by Rosamund Bartlett. Houghton Mifflin, 2011. 
And indeed, Leo Tolstoy did serve as an officer in the Russian Imperial Army during the siege of Sebastopol during the Crimean War. The author, Rosamund Bartlett, uh, doesn't go into much detail about the action that he saw, but notes that Tolstoy's experience fighting in the Crimean War, quote, turned him into a committed pacifist, end quote. And in fact, that was actually the beginning of um, his spiritual and intellectual journey when Tolstoy would become Tolstoy, so to speak. About 20 years later, he became a Christian anarchist, left the Orthodox Church for a uh, kind of personalistic anarchist and pacifist version of Christianity, partly influenced by the Dukobors, who were like the uh, Russian equivalent of the Quakers or Mennonites, a dissident pacifist church. But uh, Tolstoy rejected all organized religion at this point in his life, 1870s, as a uh, trap for the mind and believed in a kind of um, individualist spirituality, even as he espoused a kind of um, agrarian communalism as his uh, utopian vision and called for the abolition of the aristocracy. His ideas on so-called passive resistance to unjust authority later influenced Mohandas Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. And um, as it turns out, just as uh, Pyotr Tolstoy's unseemly comments percolated up into the news, I had just finished reading the first Tolstoy that I ever read in my life. I'd been working on it for uh, a couple of months, actually, <laughs> even though it's just a... Uh, one of his shorter works, actually. Now, I did not read Sevastopol Stories, which was, of course, based on his experience during the Crimean War, which I kind of wish I did, and maybe I'll try to read that next. Uh, nor did I read the much more ambitious War and Peace, which is, of course, about the Napoleonic Wars. But what I did read was um, Haji Marat about the Chechnya War, of the 1850s. And the edition that I read, um, Penguin Classics, is actually very heavily footnoted because many of the um, personages mentioned in the book are actually real historical figures. The characters are actually real-life people, such as General A.P. Yermolov, who was the commander of the Russian forces in their counterinsurgency drive against the Chechen rebels. And um, the eponymous Haji Marat is also an actual historical figure. So um, this is very didactic fiction, or really kind of a novelization of real history. Okay, a little historical background here. The Muslim North Caucasus realms of Chechnya and Dagestan had been under official Ottoman-Turkish rule, but effectively independent until the armies of the Tsars began their drive for conquest in the 18th century. And there were uh, numerous uprisings against Russian rule in the following generations, the most significant being that of Sheikh Imam Shamil, an Avar from Dagestan, that is one of the Turkic Muslim peoples of the region. 
and a dervish of the Naqshbandi Sufi order, who led an insurgency of both the Avars and the more numerous Chechens, who are an indigenous people of the Caucasus, really for about a uh, generation before his uh, capture in 1859. And Haji Murat was an Avar rebel chieftain who got into a feud with Imam Shamil and turned himself in to the Russians for protection with an eye toward possible collaboration with them. And uh, the book is all about the uh, resultant conflicted loyalties. After Haji Marat decided to defect, local Avar villagers helped him escape to the Russian lines at great risk to themselves from both sides, both Shamil and the Russians, because until he made it to their lines, as far as the Russians were concerned, the villagers were just harboring a rebel. But he makes it to a Russian fort and is eventually brought to Tbilisi, or Tiflis, as it is called in the book, the capital of contemporary Georgia, to meet with regional high officials. And I have to say, this is really why it took me so long to get through it, the, uh, the first two-thirds of the book were really uh, a bit of a slog, which is why, as I say, it took me a while to get through it, even though it's one of Tolstoy's shorter books, considered a novella rather than a full novel. But in those uh, first two-thirds of the book, there's a lot of, you know, sitting around in parlors, talking about politics and such. Not very fast-moving. This section includes a very unflattering depiction of Tsar Nicholas I, who makes a brief cameo of a few pages, and is depicted as amoral, vainglorious, shallow, and womanizing. But it's in the, uh, the final third of the book that it really picks up. It actually became a pretty fast-paced and exciting reading. And I, after spending <laughs> weeks getting through the first two-thirds, I actually, you know, charged on ahead through that final third in a single night. Shamil seizes Haji Murat's family as hostages and sends him a letter threatening to put his family to death if he doesn't surrender to him. And then the Russians launch a really brutal offensive against his own people, the Avars and the Chechens. And he decides to make a break for it and try to rescue his family and join the defense of his people. And while he's being escorted by a contingent of Cossacks through the mountains, he attempts to outride them and escape, but is captured and killed and his head brought back to the commanders at the fort in a sack. The end. And there are very vivid descriptions of the Imperial Army's scorched earth warfare against the Avars and Chechens, and particularly their um, forest clearing on a massive scale to facilitate counterinsurgency, a kind of ecocidal campaign that anticipated what the United States would, a century and ten years later, do in Vietnam. And I'm going to read a short passage here, and a uh, trigger warning, okay, because this is some heavy stuff that I'm about to read. The village laid waste by the raiding party was the one in which Haji Marat had spent the night before 
going over to the Russians. Sado, with whom he had stayed, took his family away to the mountains when the Russians approached the village. When he came back, he found his house destroyed. The roof was caved in. The door and the post supporting the veranda were burnt and the inside befouled. His son, the good-looking boy with shining eyes who had regarded Haji Murat with such rapture, was brought into the mosque dead on the back of a horse, draped with a cloak. He had been bayoneted in the back. The fine-looking woman who had waited on Haji Murat during his visit stood over her son with her hair loose and the smock she was wearing rent at the chest to reveal her old, sagging breasts. She stood clawing her face until the blood ran and wailing without stop. Sato took a pick and shovel and went with his kinsmen to dig a grave for his son. The old grandfather sat by the wall of the ruined house, whittling a stick and gazing blankly into space. He had just come back from his bee garden. The two small hayricks he had there were burnt. The apricot and cherry trees, which he had planted and tended, were broken and scorched. And worst of all, every one of his hives had been burnt together with the bees. The wailing of women sounded in every house and in the square where two more bodies were brought. The young children wailed with their mothers. The hungry animals howled too, and there was nothing to give them. The older children played no games and watched their elders with frightened eyes. The fountain had been befouled, evidently on purpose, so no water could be drawn from it. The mosque, too, had been defiled, and the mullah and his pupils were clearing it out. The village elders gathered in the square and squatted on their heels to discuss the situation. Nobody spoke a word of hatred for the Russians. The emotion felt by every Chechen, old and young alike, was stronger than hatred. It was not hatred. It was a refusal to recognize these Russian dogs as men at all, and a feeling of such disgust, revulsion, and bewilderment at the senseless cruelty of these creatures that the urge to destroy them, like the urge to destroy rats, venomous spiders, or wolves, was an instinct as natural as that of self-preservation. End quote. Words of Leo Tolstoy, Russian literary treasure, from his novella Haji Marat. One of uh, his last works, actually, published only posthumously and clearly an anti-war and an anti-imperial statement. And the reality so vividly and horrifically described in that passage is being manifested once again by the Russian army in Ukraine, just as it had been 
once again in Chechnya in the 1990s. By way of historical comparison, just today, July 15th, there was a uh, very powerful and incisive report on uh, National Public Radio's All Things Considered. Chechen soldiers join Ukraine's fight against Russia by reporter Emily Feng about the Chechen volunteers who are now fighting for Ukraine. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from it. Mansour, identified only by his first name, was 13 when Russian soldiers destroyed his village of Samashki during Chechnya's first war of independence against Russia, meaning the War of 1995. Wielding flamethrowers, the Russians burned Mansour's neighbors alive in their homes, threw grenades into basements, and executed men. Four years later, a peace truce disintegrated, referring to Putin's renewed war against Chechnya in 1999, and Mansour was back at war. He says he was never the same after. Mansour, through interpreter, Russia ruined everything I had. I grew up with war, and the war shaped me in all respects. If I had been born in America or Canada, I wouldn't come here to Ukraine. But because Russia took everything from me, I have to resist. Nothing else matters. Today, Mansour is the deputy commander of one of the at least two Chechen battalions fighting in Ukraine against Russia. Here's a second Chechen soldier, unidentified soldier through interpreter. The tragedies of Ukraine in Bukha and Mariupol are nothing compared to what we experienced growing up. The Russians leveled our cities and villages to the ground. We lost our homeland. What more does a person have to lose? Our family or children are not important when we've lost our home and the whole world was silent. This soldier says all that matters is settling a 400-year-old blood feud beginning in the 1700s when the Russian czars pushed into the North Caucasus where the Chechens live. Unidentified soldier through interpreter. This is our dream. We will pass this dream on from one generation to the next generation until this evil is destroyed. Mansour, through interpreter. In Tsarist Russia, General Yermolov stole everything from us, but we survived him. Stalin died. Putin will die. We will outlive these people. End quote. Kind of uncanny. The parallel between what these Chechen soldiers say in this bit of reportage from National Public Radio and that passage from Leo Tolstoy that I just read, written over a century ago, about events of over a century and a half ago. The more things change, the more they stay the same, eh? So I just want to close by saying that I stand with the Russia of Leo Tolstoy and the some 15,000 Russian anti-war protesters who have filled Putin's prisons since the invasion of Ukraine. 
facing lengthy prison terms merely for peacefully protesting. And I stand against the Russia of Pyotr Tolstoy and Vladimir Putin and their new dictatorship and their neo-Tsarist imperial project and their Orwellianly named special military operation. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join The Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time.